My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. In this well-being episode, I'm moving on through development because how I've been laying out some of my ideas, someone who studied psychology and art therapy and worked as an art therapist for 25 years and has four grown children, I'm using developmental stages as metaphors and helpful symbolism for different things that we can hopefully be aware of, not just in the children that are that age, but in the parts of us that may have needs that these stories or metaphors of that age group can help us to explore in ourselves as adults in the present day. And so for our own well-being to try to make sense of ourselves and make sense of our identities and learn to be in the world and learn to be adaptive and live in the best ways that we can in the world. So one of the things that happens for children as they start to get older is the small world around them, that world of their primary carers, begins to expand because their awareness of what is going on around them also begins to expand. And it's really from this point on, from kind of four-year-olds to six-year-olds, but right up to eight-year-olds, is the stronger and stronger societal and cultural norms and lessons and what there is in their environment that allows them to learn things. So whether it is an environment where they have everything done for them, or whether it's an environment where they need to start to step into small tasks that they can complete themselves. That's a cultural or societal norm. I've seen some amazing little videos of very young children making their own food in Asian countries in particular, making little dough balls or making little breads or this sort of thing at very, like at age three or four. And that's not a cultural norm in the West. Little children are generally not encouraged to be making any of their own food, certainly not in hot cookers at three and four and five. But it is just a choice. It's just a way of being in the world. And equally, they want to begin to mimic and imitate. So they're very ready to do that. They they want to have small hand-held tools the same as their adult big tools or they want to do whatever it is 
the people around them are doing. And if they have siblings, you'd often see a smaller child trying to desperately join in whatever the older siblings are doing and wanting to have that that impulse for mimicry is really, really huge. And so that big world begins to widen around them and who they get to spend time with and what they get to see is allows them to expand their competencies, allows them to try things out. And we generally think of that as their behavior being influenced by their role models and their what's around them. We generally think of that as something we call education. It's when parents first start thinking about other forms of education, even though the child has been learning from the moment that they come into the world, they've been picking up on signals, they've been paying attention to these cultural norms for a very long time. And depending on their environment, they've been learning to be active, they've been stimulated, or they've been soothed, or they've been already overwhelmed by inputs of stimulus or inputs of behavior modification, whatever that might mean in a particular culture. So some form of what parents or carers do for discipline. And, you know, early traumas can have come into play already where they can become fearful or can be affected by the atmosphere of fear sometimes around children at this age. They're picking up on all of it. And people talk about that as children are sponges, they soak it all up. But it's really true that they pay attention to so much detail and they want to explore the world. So education can be thought of as simply the environment in which a child can further explore. So if they were going to explore the world of numbers, for example, you might give a child an abacus, popular in my young childhood, that we had abacuses where we played with counting and adding and experimenting with a very tactile and visual sense of numbers. But of course, you could do that with pebbles or fruit or anything that is being encountered. And children might develop a sense of numbers, but it is possible that in the past we grew up in cultures, of course, that didn't have any concept of numbers. I think that uh, that is is part of our engineering and our civilization and our city dwelling is the introduction of math and calculation and architecture and so on. So whatever they pay attention to, maybe they pay attention to the making and coloring or playing in the muck or playing in the clay or constructing or making towers, or maybe they start to, as they get into this older young childhood, they can start to draw and make forms. And that's an interesting one in terms of mapping development in children and also mapping the different parts of a child that, that is developing because we are so multifaceted that the idea that age, which is part of the counting, where we go from one to two to three to four to five-year-old children, and there are some accepted norms around what is likely to happen with different parts of development based on the majority of children. But of course, 
those norms have huge variation in them. Growth weights in children have huge variation in them. And what they're occupied with has such variation that perhaps a child who pays a great deal of attention to kinetic learning and climbing and exploring their body and running around with great levels of leaping and dancing and activity and maybe responds to sound and actually does like to dance and move, maybe they are not the same child that's paying attention to small movements of their fingers and control of writing and calligraphy or drawing or some other fine motor control like sewing or creating in that way. So there's there's the variation in the child and then there's the variation of what environments are around them and what is expected of them to play with and what is expected of them to behave and to learn. And lots of those, of course, come with added dimensions of expectations of gender. So what a child is given to play or given to learn or given support in is in many cultures influenced by what gender the child is perceived as. And in the only quite recent history of civilizations, and even then not all of the early civilizations, but like really in only the last couple of hundred years, has the notion of very binary genders come into play and really clear and distinguished roles and even colors for the binary genders that are perceived. And so that again is part of the education of society, of norms, and the freedom or lack of it to explore whatever passions, whatever interests, whatever calls there are. And the different environments that children grow in then also have structural advantages or disadvantages. So a child growing up in certain types of environments where they're deprived because of structural disadvantage or deprivation, that will influence what is expected of them, what is going on around them, and equally children in in more resource-rich environments might have other expectations put on them. But one of the things that I remember reading years ago in one of the first art therapy books that I read by one of the founder theorists in art therapy in the States that was about uh, recognition that children in very poor and deprived areas and children in what was then, so 1950s and 60s America, upper middle class families had sometimes similar signs of neglected stimulus because of, in one case, parents overstressed and worried trying to provide resources for their children, and in the other, parents busy and away from home trying to keep up with all of the resources they had accumulated and now needed to manage in their lives. And in both instances, at that time, kids were, were in those areas were watching similar amounts of television, similar amounts of neglect going to school without the things they needed. Um, and in one case, not because of a lack of resources, but more a lack of attention. So although obviously children in deprived areas and in poverty 
have real things that they suffer that are very different than the things that children with wealth and resources have. The thing that they both need across wherever they are is this type of attention. And it, one of the psychologists called it universal positive regard. We're just looking at children from the wider world and saying, whatever it is you are or whoever you are and whatever you are doing, you are a good child. You are a good person. You deserve smiles and encouragement and attention. And so depending on what's happened at this stage of development, often if the, as the thinking of the child develops and the logic and the wisdom of a child comes into their older parts of that period between six, seven, eight, and it's called in developmental theory, it's called latency, the beginning of significant hormonal changes that happen in the biology from age five on and all the way up to the kind of 11, 12-year-olds that I'll talk about another time, baby teenagers. But as a child is coming into that five, six, seven, eight period, they have a lot of innate, what we would sometimes talk about an old head on young shoulders or the impulsive child. They have a lot of innate characteristics and personalities coming out. They have their own logic. They have their own understanding of the world based much more on their interaction with it and their observation of trying things out and getting feedback from the world. And it comes up in the Victorians who coined the, the age of reason, meaning that sort of age seven, that a child was beginning to be able to make moral judgments, according to the Victorians, being able to know what was right and wrong, which I think is an interesting indicator in relation to the societal norms coming in, the sometimes complete apparent illogic, but it is the logic of the adult world, or is the views that the adults around children are espousing, and the battleground that can be there in our culture between what adults say they know and what they push as moral behavior, but then within a structure that gives rise to a great deal of contradiction. So even in the gender piece that I was just mentioning, what girls can play with, what boys can play with, and that being the binary view of it, and also what women do and what men do, and all of that starts to go in as cultural norms. And it's interesting that some children are more prone to very clear logic and they can disregard things that make no sense to them. And it is really that word sense that is what is makes sense of the world, is what's happening for all the way through. And so, as I said, this is often the time when parents consider what kind of educational environment beyond the educational environment that they may have already provided in the home. And that is something that is changing, has had its own particular history. There's a very good explanation of the history of education in the Western world, in the industrial area, by Sir Ken Robinson. And there's actually a nice 
image-based piece done where someone's done a graphic harvest of one of his talks about how education evolved in the West in order primarily in the age of industry to educate for work, to educate for being a producer within a more increasingly mechanized industrial world where rather than it being necessary for everyone to learn primary production skills, which in older ancient cultures and in some cultures around the world today, like I was saying, where children's need for skills and competencies for making food or even growing food, being part of primary production, knowing how to make different kinds of crafts or knowing how to make shelter. And it is interesting that the today it is, at least for me, it's where I'm coming across children with high levels of skill still are in non-Western countries and the ones that also have often been in the more rural areas of their countries and particularly just like in Ireland, those that have exposure to their grandmother's knowledge or have access to those older people in the community who still feel like it's important to pass to children competencies and skills that have to do with that kind of being a a producer or co-producer of everything that you need. I've been following for the last year some of the phenomenon of uh, YouTubers from China. I think there is one particular young woman who started a trend and now there are a few others. And there's equally uh, YouTubers from craftsmen. There's old men in the countryside making traditional crafts. There's all sorts of interesting insights that we can gain in the world now across the globe as to where there are preserved crafts and skills. But very often for those of the very advanced levels of skills, they've started at this age, they've started really, really young. And it's interesting why they've been doing that is for necessity, for cultural reasons. And whereas I think today that across some of the more industrialized nations of the world, the reason that a child might learn something young, like maybe how to play an instrument, for example, often relates more to social status and attainment to be able to show this child has these skills is it's related to kind of a pride of 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 society that that they're teaching children to attain these skills and then the additional work of schools is more about finding ways to tap into intelligences and an education for a specific role in society, for a specific work that is needed in the bigger society. And so there's school systems in in the Western world, I know in Germany, where there's a very quite early division of children into those that show academic promise or those that show what's called vocational you know, doing, being the producers. So who's going to be the worker in the factory and who's going to be the manager, who's going to be 
the foot soldier and who's going to be the general, there's a kind of a sorting that begins to happen. And there are signs of that even in the primary schools and the preschools in terms of who can access the kinds of schools that might best set up a child for moving on through this education system, meeting the attainments that give them the best structural advantages. And that, again, of course, is all altered by where the child's growing up in the first place because there's clear evidence of educational attainment varying by socioeconomic area and the advantages of the social connections and the community at large that provide spaces for advancement. So that's a lot to take in and a lot to think about when we think about well-being. But one of the things that I think is quite helpful is to be able to look back a little bit at that part of yourself that wanted to explore in freedom anything in the world that held your interest. And if you are in the privileged position of having time to reflect or time to explore, it can be something that can be done at any stage of your life is to pay attention and recall where where your interests at this age, where were your interests from between the ages of, say, well, three, four, five, six, seven, up to maybe eight, and where did your, you know, what did people say about you? What did they notice you doing then? Because all of those curiosities and propensities are probably still in you, and some of them meet needs for your curiosity, and some of them meet needs for your emotional soothing or your emotional balancing and equilibrium, or some of them for your intellectual stimulus and other kinds of needs being met. And it's something to explore is what way you meet those same needs now and whether they are satisfactory ways to meet those needs or whether some of the ways you meet those needs are pseudo-satisfiers, things that you've had to accept and take up in order to meet a need based on what's available to you, what is in your environment, what was in your structured life, where your areas of development went as you got older, and whether anything needs revisiting there, whether there's any area where you can recognize something as a pseudo-satisfier, meaning it kind of hits the spot of a need you have. Maybe it's like a half-satisfier, a partial-satisfier, kind of like having sugar or a sweet when what you really need is a meal when you're hungry. And so there are all sorts of pseudo-satisfiers. And I think it's something in our society that those pseudo-satisfiers can become something more serious, I suppose, where they can become a type of addiction, where there is something like we would talk about the risks in social media of where the need is for social contact because of loneliness and where the pseudo-satisfier is a post that gains a couple of likes and a bit of attention and a comment, but the loneliness remains and so you have to go back to looking for it, either to break out of it and find a really satisfying way 
to address that, to find connection. Or you can go back around and continually satisfy it through this maybe easy-ish, seemingly easy way to satisfy it, but it's not doing that. And I think that that the roots of that can start at that developmental stage, and so it can be a place to just go back and and if you're if you've lost track of what you need in the world and how to meet those needs and whether you can find ways to meet them as an adult yourself when you identify who you are and what your personality needs in any moment, this going back and imagining what did I get into what was what were my curiosities. And they they may have they may not be the same, but there is something of that childlike view. I once did a workshop where we were asked to walk through a garden, noticing the plants and the flowers and the herbs and the vegetables, and then we sat for a little while and tried. Were invited to try to imagine our five year old self, and then we were asked to kind of imagine that now we'd go back. To the garden and invite our five-year-old self to lead us by the hand. And it was kind of remarkable because even though we were walking through the same garden, something of that evoking of the five-year-old made all of us experience the garden differently. And we saw different things in it as if we could reawaken the eyes of our five-year-old selves and we could see things that we hadn't seen as when we walked through as our adult selves. So it's that sort of idea that I'm suggesting that can be useful to address what we believe, because I think as I talk about in another one of the episodes on ancestors, what we believe, what we're taught to believe is a reflection of how our world is arranged around us. And so anyone who is at the level of introducing ideas at this stage of our lives and now in our current stage of our lives, that's still a product of how our world is arranged. So it can be hard to shake off the practice of need meeting from habits that we have now that may or may not be useful to us. They may be maladaptive. We may meet needs in ways that are, like I say, pseudo-satisfacting and not really truly meeting our needs. And I think that that, as we learn to explore that, it helps us meet the needs of children better, and it helps us meet the needs of our community better, helps us understand the needs we all have in community. So whether it is simply that we need to rest, or we need to breathe, or we need to do something creative, these are the actions of working to cultivate ourselves as a person in the same way that we cultivate the soil and give the kinds of environment that will give rise to rich and nutrient-filled soil for whatever it is that we want to do. And that also allows us be in a ground where we can make connections and attachments to others and we can align in our lives more directly with what we hope to do in our day-to-day moments as we do that connection. When I was a beginning therapist, I think this particular age group was 
as you went out of babyhood into childhood and later early teens. It was something that was very popular at the time in, in psychotherapy was inner child work. And I think it's because of the riches that exist in that really rapid period of expansion and what happens to us in that period as children. And so I think that they were onto something when you tap back into the wisdom that you held within you at that age group and that whatever was happening in your life that either cultivated or squished that is something that means it's still there, it can still be regenerated through generative actions in the world and whatever it can lead to in you might be exciting and new and through the eyes of a child.